I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Today we're joined by James Hibbert, a former professional cyclist, a philosopher and the author of the amazing book, The Art of Cycling, A Guide to Bicycling in the 21st Century America. In his meditative love letter to the sport of cycling, James explores the many ways in which cycling can shed new light on those age-old questions of selfhood, meaning and purpose. He draws on his experience as a track sprinter to his journey towards integrating mindful practices into his rides. James offers us a unique perspective on the intersection of cycling and philosophy. In this episode, we're going to explore the concept of flow and how it can enhance the cycling experience, discuss the connection between physical activity and mental well-being, and delve into the ethical considerations of cycling. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. And there was a sort of like chain link fence that almost looked prison yard like. And I just remember seeing seeing a cycling team motor pacing behind their team car and and sort of fingers interlaced through this chain link fence that was a, a little bit above the elevation of the road. And just absolutely thinking, that's what I want to be doing now. So I think that there's a sort of self-reflection away from a mass media, away from a crowd, away from the direction that everyone else is going, that enables a more authentic relationship to yourself. And then the sort of ethical ensues from that. I certainly recall being young and literally Christmas Eve at the Olympic Training Center, four cyclists and a few gymnasts staring at a sad Christmas tree and having a meal and going for a training ride. And and I sort of remember that even as a teenager, being a mental health low. I also was able to look around and was exposed to tour winners and Olympic gold medalists. And oftentimes I sort of looked at their behavior and what you have to do in order to succeed on the bike. And setting aside drugs, setting aside mental health matters, anything else, I often thought, I don't know that this is the type of person I want to become. James, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Great to be here. I know how much the podcast has grown and really respect it, so I'm super excited to chat, Anthony. Yeah, it's cool. I'm still uh, I'm still mystified as to how it's grown. It's true. Very little good work for myself and more amazing guests like you. Uh, I was thinking back about the intersection of academia, philosophy, cycling, like there's not a lot of academics in the cycling world. And I was chatting to my dad about it yesterday in advance of our podcast. And he shared with me a picture from the Nissan Classic, which was our national cycling race. I'm going to say right. it was 87 or 88. And it was me as a child on the shoulders of Laurent Fignon. And I remembered he was called the professor. <laughs> but he wasn't called, he looked totally like a professor. Like he had the glasses, he had the wild professor hair. But the story goes that I heard that he was actually called a professor because he had something like a one-year undergrad degree. And for me, <laughs> that shot, like he dropped out of his undergrad, sorry, veterinary school, I think it was, in the first year of his studies. So that shows how little academic introspection there has been traditionally in the cycling peloton that he earned that moniker, the professor, off the back of Absolutely. being a dropout. I do feel it's changing and you're definitely sitting at that intersection of change between academia, cycling and philosophy. How do you view that intersection? I think there's a few interesting things going on with it. I think first of all on, and this is really nuts and bolts, 
Um, but I think, first of all, the sort of old Eastern Bloc systems of uh, junior talent identification, move to your country's federation training center, uh, sort of meat grinder system starting when you're 12. I think that some of those things are thankfully sort of starting to vanish, the sort of communist development systems, and that collegiate cycling is now a legitimate pipeline. And, and the whole idea that you have to be a 14-year-old doing 30-hour weeks is, is thankfully starting to diminish. So I think that's one thing. And then is I think- it though, James? Like I, I wonder about that a little bit where I would definitely have agreed with that sentiment maybe in an era yeah. pre-Remco. And now I see like teams increasingly. I used to play uh, football, soccer to our international listeners. And there's something regrettable that happens in that is English teams will sign maybe like 15, 16-year-old kids in the hope that one of those right. will make it and the rest will be discarded on right. the scrap heap. I think cycling is getting more like that now where no one wants to miss the next Remco. So we're so, they're signing so many youngsters. You don't even need to be good anymore. You just need to be young. I think there's definitely some of that, but I think, and I probably am being a little bit US specific here, but the, the US system, right, used to be not even 16 years old, move out to the training center from having done well at junior nationals and a very, very Eastern Bloc meat grinder approach like you mentioned for for soccer, for football. So yeah, I think that that there is a generation of youngsters succeeding that is getting guys to turn pro younger, but I do think that there's a more sensible training development approach and an awareness to those riders being young. My general understanding is those riders are are still being developed and have to have some pretty nice guidance from good savvy coaches rather than the sort of meat grinder attrition. I think there's enough physiologists, enough doctors and sports scientists who know what they're doing that that they're being developed a bit more properly than in the nineties and early odds. James, as you were navigating your way through, you know, a very troubled era in cycling through the nineties, were you always drawn into contemplating bigger questions or did you always feel like a part of you was in academia and a part of you was in the bike? I very much felt like a part of me was always in academia and not even academia in terms of I want to be a professor or something. I mean, I did, but very much my thought was there's something else and more sort of interesting in the world sort of lurking behind it. So I remember uh, very distinctly being at a, at a, I think it was an EDS track cup, uh, a big national level track race uh, where I needed to perform real, pretty well. I remember reading St. Zupery, Wind, Sand, and Stars and being moved to tears as, as this, this pilot is down, lost in the desert the night before a team pursuit final or something. And, and just sort of, even then at 17, 18 years old, having enough insight into performance psychology and sort of realizing, man, I am not the sort of calm, cut-out person. I'm weeping, reading French aviation literature the night before a team pursuit final. This makes me kind of an oddball in a lot of ways for the sport of cycling. I look at cycling and that model that you came through, and to a large extent, we still use this model of bringing kids through, and as you progress up and up this ladder, everything else in life starts to take increasingly more of a backseat. You know, as you step up to world tour, 
your life just needs to get tighter and tighter and tighter. But the eventual output or what most of these road riders specifically are chasing is a Grand Tour victory, a win in a Classics. But you look at riders that have come out the far end of this system, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. You take a Bradley Wiggins, who's won a 2012 Tour de France gold medal in 2012. But if the very system that creates this champion breaks the person in the process and he becomes someone with mental health problems, with isolation, that's fighting addiction, is the system itself inherently flawed? And should we be pushing more and more people towards this? I really think the conversation around mental health and elite sport is a huge one. I think that embedded in your question in terms of development are, are sort of two questions. I think, first of all, those systems that produce someone like a Wiggins, they're designed to produce a, a singular champion. I think the, the first question there is how many other talented riders fall to the wayside? If you want, for in this case, British cycling to be successful, could you have had a Wiggins and six other World Cup winners on the track or another Classics winner produced out of that system from it not being quite so vicious? I think that's question one. And that's a purely sort of like pragmatic, are we going to produce international medalists in our sport question? I think more to your point about, okay, what's the the sort of long-term consequences of this one champion that we produce? I think that that too needs to be looked at and is... It's very isolating, and I think that uh, I was nowhere near a Wiggins level, but I certainly recall being young and literally Christmas Eve at the Olympic Training Center, four cyclists and a few gymnasts staring at a sad Christmas tree and having a meal and going for a training ride. And, and I sort of remember that, even as a teenager, being a mental health low, uh, sort of being away from family, being away from friends, missing the sort of marquee high school events that and, and sort of milestones that people go through. So I think that paying attention to all of those things from a mental health perspective and realizing that you're not going to become a champion at 17 or 18 generally and that you have to have a relatively long career, at least through one's mid-20s at a minimum, is really a huge paradigm shift in terms of of how federations and people in charge of, of cyclist development can look at things. I think the question then becomes, do we need to redefine what we call success? Because if success is you win a Tour de France, but you have addiction, isolation, it's difficult to call that success. And that's maybe mirrored, not just in sport, but in wider society. If somebody ascends to the role of CEO in a company, if a founder creates right. a, you know, a product that the world wants, buys, yearns for, raves about, but in the process loses himself and all the values that he holds dear, can we call that success? I, I really don't think we can. And I think that there's a whole... I, I don't want to pivot this towards a conversation of the sort of bad doping era in cycling, but I do think that there's something very interesting culturally, and we now have sort of the perspective to look back to the late 90s, early 2000s, from Bernie Madoff uh, to Harvey Weinstein. I think there was something very interesting happening at that moment culturally that we're still sort of grappling with in terms of outward success and that's ostensibly meritocratic, masking a much sort of uglier underbelly to how that success was achieved. And I think that figuring out how to look at a whole person 
and have that whole person both have this sort of public persona of success and actually be healthy in the process of doing it is an absolutely huge thing that that society and sport and cycling need to grapple with at, at the moment in order to to be healthy and be something that that people want their kids involved with and that that there's healthy role models for junior cyclists for people who aspire to be entrepreneurs whatever the case might be I love the idea that no man ever walks in the same river twice because it's never the same man and it's never the same river. When I look back on my relationship with the bike, that's definitely true. Like the relationship has mirrored both my physical development and my mental developments through different parts of my life. Like my earliest memories of the bike were building bikes with my dad and, you know, finally getting the wheels on and it just being this escape right. just to get out of my locality to, you know, spread right. my wings. You had this boundary limit which your parents would set maybe at the end of the block or the end of the street. The bike allowed you past that with this sort of uh, implicit license to explore. And then going into school, it was a vehicle for transportation. It was something to sidestep the stress and the frustration that others had when they were in traffic. And, you know, going abroad, racing in France and trying to get contracts in the US, it became a tool to try and build a career and build a living. And now, right. now I struggle to put it in a box as to what it is. Now it's, now it's maybe more of a, a feeling. It's a, it's a relaxation. It's a sensation. It's a, it's a tool to facilitate friendships, but it, it's definitely not as well-defined as it previously was. What's that relationship with the bike been like for you through the years, and where do you sit with that now? I think like you, it started off very much based on this idea of freedom, which I think is, is very universal, but also has an extra sort of American charge. This sort of whole idea of freedom and the open road, and especially growing up in Northern California, all of those ideas of freedom on the road, I think, were just so pervasive. So I had clubmates, parents that were sort of part of the, the Bay Area 1960s counterculture. So people like Jack Kerouac, Ken Kesey, getting on a bus, driving across the country, driving west, all of these things were sort of in the air. I mean, it wasn't like a conscious thing, but I think the idea of getting out on a bike and having that freedom was really formative and really fundamental. I remember being in what we call in the U.S. middle school, seventh or eighth grade, and there was a sort of like chain link fence that almost looked prison yard-like. And I just remember <laughs> seeing seeing a cycling team motor pacing behind their team car and, and sort of fingers interlaced through this chain link fence that was a, a little bit above the elevation of the road. And just absolutely thinking, that's what I want to be doing now. I don't want to be sort of behind this chain link fence, confined to other people's schedules. It just seemed brilliant to be out in in the sunshine at 11 a.m. on a weekday, riding your bike rather than than being in school. So for me, that idea of freedom was was formative. And then I think later on, certainly the friendships that I formed through cycling really close friendships with with teammates and and Jackson and Zach in the book and then moving on now to i think the exercise riding as a tool for mental health and well-being and sort of coming back to the bike without any career expectations without any 
obsessiveness that I used to bring to to cycling and riding. You think that obsessiveness is a uniquely James trait, a uniquely bike rider trait, or is there something about that obsessive personality that draws characters into the sport? I think it tends to draw very obsessive characters into the sport. I think that there's, uh, certainly I'm individually guilty of it, so I don't want to, I don't want to sort of project my own neurotic tendencies onto everyone. But I think that there's a degree of obsessive neuroticism that at least at a certain level is very much rewarded. And I think it can start to sort of backfire on people. And, and it certainly did for me. But I do think there's a sort of like obsessive quality about breaking down everything you're doing in training, about breaking down your equipment to its, its components and trying to optimize everything. And there's a sort of gambler-like addiction to it where you think, well, okay, this year I, I didn't win this race. I, I didn't improve my PR and my individual pursuit. But next year I've got XYZ strategy. And you sort of sustain yourself on this thought that, well, with new aero socks and a different regimen of, of intervals, things are going to be entirely different next year. And I think there's this sort of obsessive gambler tendency that is rewarded and that keeps people going in the sport. And, and certainly I was part of that. And that was how I was wired. And I saw that in a lot of other successful, successful people, for sure. I think there's a control element to it as well. You see a lot of people or I observe friends that aren't into sport and not judging or labeling or condemning, but a lot of their life is happen chance. It's in a little bit of free fall. It's reactive. They might have some goals, but they're not very well formed or thought out goals in areas of their life. And if they happen, they happen. If they don't, they don't. If you contrast that to athletes and specifically bike riders, we take big goals and we break them down step by step. We take the big outcome goal and we break it into really small process goals to the point that we know what we're doing. We know where our heart is at. We know where our cadence is at. We know where our power is at. Every minute for the duration of a session. And then we get rewarded with a green box in our training peaks or today's plan. Session complete. That feedback loop is complete. And now we move on to the next. It's a very almost hunter-gatherer system where it's like, okay, I'm hungry, I move, I get food, I'm happy. I'm hungry, I move, I get food, I'm happy. And when we don't have that feedback loop, I see athletes that when they retire, they really struggle for structure and meaning in their life. Yes, I I think you're spot on. I love that you're saying this because I think it's absolutely spot on. I I always think of, I, I don't even play the game, but I often think of chess as a really clear-cut analogy for this. I think that being a sort of analytical person in some ways, being a perfectionist, process-driven person, as you just described in cycling, you're sort of able to think five, seven moves. You feel like you can think ahead in a way that the average person is not. And I think that there's a sense of security and control that you can at least have in the domain of, of your racing and your training. And as soon as one retires and discovers that that ability is very much limited to cycling and really doesn't work all that well in the world and you can't have that degree of control no matter how clever you think you are or how conscientious or how hard you try, I think that 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 disjunct and that lack of control in everyday civilian life is very difficult to adapt to. 
and and I think that it's often thought that boy, this guy quit racing. He can't stand that he's not the center of attention any longer and, and things like that. I think it has much more to do, frankly, with a lot of people with structure and control than it does anything that's sort of self-aggrandizing and narcissistic in that way. And it's setting goals and achieving goals. It's the idea of I'm setting a task every day and I'm actually achieving that task every day. Right. It's this the immediate feedback cycle, like you say, of, of the box being ticked something like that really is incredibly psychologically powerful. Whereas everything else in, I don't know, for lack of a better term, (laughs) civilian non-sporting life is sort of messier and goopier and you don't get this sort of feedback that you do from sport. And and frankly, also in a lot of ways from, from education, right? You get, you get a paperback with an A or something like that. That's just not, that's not the way the business adult world works whether one works for a company or is or is self-employed the sort of like dopamine hit feedback loops just don't happen at the same rate i have a really exciting season of gravel racing planned some amazing races i absolutely can't wait for the migration gravel race over in kenya and badlands in spain jumps out as another highlight but i really don't want to slip on this podcast i'm not going to i'm sticking to this six days a week schedule that i've promised so i needed to find tools to make sure that every hour i have available counts that's why i'm super happy to partner with what bike the what bike adam it's in the recording studio right beside my desk if i have an hour free between interviews views, I literally just jump on. It's removing all the friction points for me. No more 10 minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees, trying to get things to connect. It just works seamlessly every single time. The Watt Bike Adam, it's also perfect for when I decide to do a Zwift race. It has crisp gear changes, 1% power accuracy, and a max gradient capability of 25%. Even on the steepest climbs over in Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm using like a custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route in Watopia, I'll select more suitable climbing gear ratio. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend this one any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. You can now get 10% off the What Bike Adam. Just head on over to whatbike.com. They have a limited time sale running at the moment. So if you've been on the fence and you've been thinking about buying a smart bike for a while, or like me, the turbo trainer was just proving too frustrating, now is an amazing time to buy. Just head on over to whatbike.com. I'm struggling to define my current relationship with the bike. I know I love cycling and I didn't think I needed daily structure. I didn't think I needed goals anymore. I'd I'd reconciled myself to, okay, you've been doing this for a decade. It's time to park that chapter of your life and move on to the next chapter of your life. And then I'd been two, three years. I just completed my first stage race in four years, but I'd been probably three years without doing an interval, any structure. You know, I'd ride if it was sunny and some friends were riding, but you know, I might ride three hours a week, some might weeks I might ride 10 hours a week, but then I mightn't ride for four weeks. But right. I went bike packing with a friend last year. And we rode from Granada all the way through Spain to Biarritz and then turned across to Girona. So we'd done about two thousand kilometers oh, in ten yeah. days. Okay. Gravel bikes fully loaded. It was amazing fun. But it was the first time of getting that feedback loop again. Cause it's like the day was so simple. And I'm struck the more conversations I have on this podcast that I don't think life is a game of addition. It's not a game of accumulating new stuff. It's more of a game of subtraction. How little can I be happy with? And bikepacking 
peeled up back to its essence for me. I needed a pair of bib shorts, a jersey. I needed a charger for the phone. I needed a credit card. And then I had a target each day. I got to do 200 kilometers to get to this hotel. Then you get right. to the hotel and that feedback loop is complete. And then you start again. And when I was halfway through the trip, it was like it was like a piece of a puzzle that had been missing for the last four years finally just slotted back into place. And I was like, I need this. I need this in my life. It doesn't have to be what it was before, chasing pro contracts and this right. all-consuming occupation that takes over every aspect of my life and is toxic to relationships. I can have it in some sort of container in a confined, most likely a temporal container, like a 10 hours a week, I can pursue this. Right. But the idea of setting and achieving targets, I think it makes me happier. I, I think it does. And I think that a lot of people need that. And I think that there are a lot of, this is a much larger conversation, but I do think there are a lot of people that feel rather alienated from the work they do. I mean, I touch on this in the book, but I think that a lot of the, ostensible knowledge jobs that people work, marketing, computer programming, the sort of list goes on. And these are, these are you're lucky to have these jobs. They tend to be relatively well compensated. You're not doing backbreaking work. So I don't want to aggrandize physical labor or anything. But I do think that, that those jobs tend to be very much alienated from what we're talking about in terms of reward, where at least if you're building a table, if you're making a violin, if you're developing a tangible skill, cycling, all of those things have this sort of built-in reward circuitry by design because they're, they're very tangible. You know when you've completed the job. So I think the sort of never-ending white-collar job knowledge work leaves a lot of people feeling really alienated from their own work and increasingly sort of from themselves. It's sort of like delivering the mail, right? It's this never-ending thing, and it just goes on and on and on and on if you're a postman. So I think that there's some interesting things to consider there about tangible versus intangible when we're talking about these sort of reward systems and how good they feel and how necessary they are for people. I wonder about the role of identity in this as well, like how we see ourselves, like seen a report last week, I, I can't recall if I dig it up, I'll list it in the show notes, a report on male depression and suicides post-pandemic, and it's at unprecedented levels. And I often wonder about that and the relationship between cycling and physical activity. And I wonder, is it a separation from or a part of it? It's like, it's a reductionist argument to say it's the only reason, right. but a part of it is ancestrally, like males were the protectors. There's a very physical aspect to being a man. And a lot right. of these modern jobs, when you're sitting at a desk, looking at a screen all day, it's stripping you of that ancestral identity. But when you reconnect with sport, it's giving you an outlet to express that ancestral identity a little bit. No, I think so. Absolutely. And I think that amongst People of both genders and certainly among men, I think like the statistics speak for themselves in terms of depression and suicide. And certainly it's something that I've struggled with and been treated for and had big, frankly, very big struggles that I don't want to sugarcoat or be candid and I want to be very candid about in terms of depression after and frankly during the time I was racing. And I think that I think it's two pronged. I think that. Yes, the sort of physicality has been 
reduced greatly in, in modern industrialized societies. And I think that that's huge. But I do think that there's also something interesting about elite sports where you can sort of train yourself into submission. The depression and anxiety, like just to be totally clear, candid, everyone knows the sensation. You can start out on a ride sort of anxious, depressed with a mind racing. You go and do a hard five hours in the mountains on a bike and you're just tired. And I, I think that, that you, can, you can continue that for many, many years if you've got mental health struggles. And you sort of, you have the exhaustion, you have these sort of short-term victories, and then you sort of step away from the sport and you realize that the whole thing was, was this sort of insular construct that, that doesn't matter in the outside world and that it really isn't going to help you. You've sort of kicked the can of your problems from, let's say, as often is the case, uh, with sort of hormones and puberty, depression has a sort of onset of 14, 15, you start being a successful bike racer around the same time. You retire from the sport when you're 25, 27, and your, your coping mechanisms haven't developed. I mean, this is the way that, that addiction is often sort of spoken of. So I don't want to necessarily say that, that a cycling career is quite as bad as that, but I do think that there's some parallels. The sort of addictive property of cycling, and you proverbially wake up as soon as you're done with, with your time as an athlete, and you say, shit, I I'm, I'm, don't have any coping mechanisms other than to go ride my bike hard for five and a half hours. Well, I had Yanni Brakovich, you know, Criterium, the Dauphiné winner on the podcast a couple of months ago. And he spoke about exactly that, where he said he was addicted to cycling and it was toxic to every part of his life. Yeah. And he was using physical exercise and specifically exhaustion as a tool to quieten the mind and yeah. almost like you're saying, beat his mental health problems into shut up, we'll do it tomorrow, quieten the fuck down. Yep. And yep. It, this was a, template that he ran over decades until he retired as a pro cyclist and said you know i haven't been a good husband i haven't been a good father and i'm actually not that good of a person and now i have to deal with all this unless i'm gonna yeah. just find another physical outlet to quieten this voice to be honest just even sort of hearing that gives me just chills of recognition i think that that is dead bang on and i think what's very interesting that the the sort of thing that you raised too is this idea of what kind of a person are you? I mean, look, my my, I was a American D three pro. My talent ceiling was rather limited, and and I recognized that by the time I was twenty three, twenty four, there were were other better riders of my generation, certainly. But I also was able to look around and was exposed to tour winners and Olympic gold medalists. And oftentimes I sort of looked at their behavior and what you have to do in order to succeed on the bike. And setting aside drugs, setting aside mental health matters, anything else, I often thought, I don't know that this is the type of person I want to become. And, and I found that to be increasingly problematic as I got older. I didn't see in close proximity to them. I looked around and with a few Glaring sort of counterexamples. I, I generally didn't see a whole lot of people who were hugely successful who I wanted to emulate on an interpersonal level. And, and I found that to be really tough. 
I think the problem with it is as well, you look at the sacrifice it takes when you're that close. You know, I've had a chance to, you know, be close friends with World Tour riders and amazing champions. And yeah. you look at them and you see the sacrifices it takes and you're trying to weigh up in right. your head saying, well, could I do what they do? But there's a very uncertain outcome. You can make all those sacrifices that they make plus some more, plus cross all the ethical lines you want to cross and still not be guaranteed that output success on the far end. That's what makes the decision very, very difficult to justify. It really does. And I think that, thankfully, it seems as if the culture around at least the ethical decisions has changed somewhat in terms of the ethical decisions around doping. It seems like like really the sport has dealt with that generally pretty well. And I'm now an outsider to that knowledge, but I'm fingers crossed that sort of posterity will will confirm that. I think that what was very difficult in the late 90s and early 2000s was this sort of cognitive dissonance of just train harder and everything will will work out. And yet sort of knowing like, hey, this performance, I'm in very close proximity to this person. This performance just doesn't make any sense. And there were a lot of those. And you sort of, I think that the way you can, I don't know, a good analogy was you're sort of walking up these stairs to get to a curtain to pull back to really understand what was happening at that time in terms of drugs in the sport. And what was frustrating was the sacrifices that you have to make to get to the top to even pull back that curtain. It wasn't as if everyone understood that that was what one was was almost necessarily signing up for. And I mean, I was my first pro contract was with a team called Shackley in 2000. So it was really absolute, probably worst time to try and, and make it as a professional road track guy. Most listeners won't be able to really firsthand identify. Obviously, we've all witnessed, you know, the Armstrong era and the fallout from that. Mm-hmm. But most people won't be able to really identify with that ethical crossroads to do or not to do when that point's come. Do I take the pill for extra performance? Do I not? But we are faced with ethical decisions almost every day cycling. Do I run the red light? Do I not? The car is close past me. Do I bang on the side of this car or do I not? Can you speak a little bit more about the ethical considerations of cycling and sort of overall, how can that enhance the cycling experience choosing the right path there? I think that choosing the right path overall ethically when it comes to to sports is, for me, it was always a matter of, I think, a very fundamentally conservative temperament. It wasn't a matter of, I suppose I came to the sport with a very sort of chariots of fire outlook about what cycling and, and sports were. I mean, it was the the thought of making an Olympic team, representing the U.S. internationally, and those were the things that, that really interested me. So I think that from running the red light, banging in the car to, to doping, I always just had a, a vision of the sport that I wanted to uphold to make it meaningful to me. And it seemed like transgression ethically would just sort of throw the entire thing out the window. And frankly, there were a lot of times that I was, that I was afraid. I mean, my, my sort of temperament in terms of fear calculus from drugs to red light running was very, very low. It's not as if I was afraid sort of banging around in a crit or descending fast. 
But I don't know. I'd always had a very clear-cut sense in most regards, I suppose other than my descending, but in most regards about my own mortality and potential to, to be hurt and for things to go really awry. So my, my sort of desire to put foreign substances in my body or run a red light or get into a fight with a redneck in a pickup truck were all pretty minimal. And I think that that's just a matter of temperament. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Chitellis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment, but they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. We are in a strange cultural time with social media, and there seems to be a lot of selective outrage and virtue signaling. And I'm struck by that sort of, I can't remember who said it, uh, it might have been a Seneca quote, let's spend less time debating what the meaning of a good man is and just be a good man. Right. I think this so often with cycling as well, you see these debates on Reddit forums about running red lights, not running red lights, the us versus them debate that rages on between cyclists and motorists. And I put out a a tweet like, it's probably four or five months ago. And I was, the the genesis of it was like stuff that cyclists shouldn't do. And one of them was like, cameras on your helmets. I was like, stop doing the helmet camera thing and then posting the footage on Twitter and it's creating this us versus them mentality. And another one, and a lot of these are born of experience. Another one was like, if there's a close pass and you're coming back through the town and you pass that car again, don't bang on the side of the car because it just, it doesn't help. Right. And my thinking was like, and it's an evolution of me, you know, as a person, as a bike rider, I like to just give people the benefit of the doubt where I think most people are good humans and I've close past cyclists in the car myself, but it's always been, my mind was on something else. Not that that justifies it, but it's just like, there was no intent there. I think when there's a lack of intent, that's going to change how somebody reacts to it. If I didn't intend to scare you as I came past, it normally will elicit a different reaction than if I actually went out to scare the shit out of you or hurt you. So right. I, tr- I was trying to articulate this, very difficult in 140 characters, so I probably absolutely butchered <laughs> it. But the amount of vitriol I got from that one tweet, and I was like, it's very unfounded because as I journey through the world, I don't see people behaving as they're sort of pontificating on these social platforms. Well, I think it's it's a very interesting larger issue you raise. The the writer David Foster Wallace speaks about this. You can sort of, for your own benefit, you can think very sort of selfishly. You can sort of think, how am I going to confront the world? What assumptions am I going to make? I think that he uses the example of of being in a in a grocery store in a supermarket someone doesn't pay attention cuts in front of him in line right so you can sort of as you say you can bring to that this inconsiderate asshole cut me off because they think that they're more important than i am and right you can bring that sort of baggage to it or you can 
instead bring a more sympathetic view. This person didn't see me. Their parent just died. They have a sick child at home. So I I think that certainly for me, the society I want to live in is a lot more invested in the louder approach. And I think that that approach of empathy and sympathy and thinking the best of people not only benefits society, but benefits the person who's uh, viewing the world in that more sympathetic way, as opposed to an aggrieved, angry, assuming the worst way. And it's really hard to live like this, but it's a huge paradigm shift, I think. Yeah, and it's such a nice way to approach conversations, and it's such a nice way to approach problem-solving, even on contentious issues. Like, I got a little bit of blowback on the whole COVID lockdowns versus vaccines debate, basically because I wouldn't take a stance. I'm like, I'm just not that bothered, because my central assumption was people are good. People are making the best decisions they can with the education they have and the information they have available to them. If you choose to wear a mask and get a vaccine, you choose to not wear a mask and interact with people. It's based on the knowledge you have and your ability to interpret that knowledge with that underlying assumption that people are good. And coming to with that assumption rather than the assumption of he's out to hurt me or he's out to endanger people, it it changes your happiness levels. It it does tremendously. So I think that what I described in the sort of supermarket David Foster Wallace example that, that he gives, I think the profound thing about that is that it changes your own happiness level. Not that, so you can sort of adopt what seems like a very altruistic position, perhaps, for very selfish reasons that, that net benefit you so I, and your own mental health and outlook. So I think that that, that, that that shift is hugely important and is a good example of why, frankly, why thinking matters and why ideas matter. The sort of mental constructs that you bring to the world really tend to change your emotional reaction to a huge number of things. I have the brilliant philosopher Peter Singer as an upcoming guest on the podcast, but I've already recorded the episode. One of the thought experiments we chatted about, and it'd be brilliant to hear your take on it, it's the drowning child experiment. Have you heard this? Uh, so you pass a pond and there's a child drowning in the pond. You have the ability and you have the means and resources to save this child, but it's going to require you going in and your $20,000 Rolex and your suit and everything is going to be ruined to save this child. Do you save the child? For me, absolutely. This seems like I've heard this and this just seems like not a problem, a no-brainer in terms of the value of human life. Yeah, and I and I, I do think that that the fact that the fact that that's even sort of become contentious strikes me as as in and of itself interesting in the state of where society is at. I think the, the crux of the debate for me is on proximity because, you know, I'm riding a very nice bike. So although I don't have to ruin a Rolex and there's no child drowning right in front of me that I can get to right now, there's a child drowning. Somewhere in the world right now, if I was to sell my bike and donate that money that child would no longer be drowning, using drowning as a metaphor for you know all sorts of right. diseases, malaria, et cetera. That's the harder part. It's like, what weight do we put on proximity? Well, what weight do we put on not only proximity in a sort of physical geographic space, but I think the other thing to think about in terms of proximity here is embedded in capitalism 
is a whole lot of exploitation and it's very, very difficult to keep your hands clean. I mean, I'm not ignorant about the factory conditions that, that where my phone and computer are made, about the fact that I have, you have money invested, right? Or what are the, what are the sort of, I, I don't even necessarily mean humanitarian, but what are just the, the absolute ground level working conditions that are, that are a result of all of this? Uh, I heard about this, the, the African mining of, metals that are necessary for batteries for, cobalt, for cars yeah, it's disgusting there's right. no ethical mining of cobalt possible i'm glad i'm glad you're familiar with it it's 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 absolutely awful so the trade-off you think boy let's preserve the planet for future generations let's have an electric vehicle that has lower emissions and then you hear about the the realities of cobalt mining so it's exceptionally difficult in a global interconnected world to morally, ethically do the right thing on a humanitarian level. And I think that where it becomes exceptionally complicated is cases like the environment, like electric car usage, where you think you're doing the right ethical thing, and yet it backfires in a very direct way for a specific subset of people. And based on, on for some reason, for me, I find that very difficult. And I find the sort of emotional challenge of individual suffering more immediate and more compelling than any sort of like abstract environmental benefit. And, and I always have uh, felt weirdly hyper-attuned to that, perhaps to, to my detriment to, to function as an adult in highly competitive America, to be honest. Where's the debate in philosophical schools at the moment about how to navigate this increasingly consumer-driven world with the idea of being a good citizen, a good person? I'm not totally up to speed on what's going on ethically in terms of, I, I don't want to sort of overstate the literature that's come out and my knowledge of it in the last five to seven years, to be honest. I think that where philosophy tends to land, has historically tended to land ethically, going back to, to figures like Hegel, to figures like Nietzsche, is very much working to get rid of an alienation from oneself and from one's own trying to to get back to a point of authenticity and when we're we're sort of talking about some of the existentialist figures who I've always been really interested in authenticity really tends to be the key and from authenticity flows a deep sympathy and moral understanding for the true total robust existence of other people. Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre were very articulate on this point to not use others as mere means, but to always recognize their humanity as an end in and of itself. And I think that that ethical insight is massive. And even though some of those figures are now writing, you know, Sartre, Camus, uh, 80 years ago, there's, there's a lot of of export to their thought about not exploiting people as a mere, any human being as a mere means. To use a cycling analogy, if you're you're following your little GPX route on the highlighted route on your Garmin or your stages dash, and the highlighted route is authenticity, how do we know when we're off course? I think you know you're off course 
as soon as you start deferring to the value sets of others. And I think that that Nietzsche here is articulate in terms of talking about uh, the herd. So Nietzsche is hugely contemptuous of the herd and the sort of mass of people rushing headlong towards something. So I think that there's a sort of self-reflection away from a mass media, away from a crowd, away from the direction that everyone else is going that enables a more authentic relationship to yourself. And then the sort of ethical ensues from that. When you're on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. I think so. I really do think so. And I think that that can be a very lonely, very arduous task. But I do think that that whenever you you sort of notice that you're going along with 85% of the population, it at least is, is time to sort of pause and, and consider. And I think that, that technology and the internet has only exacerbated this sort of what everyone calls echo chambers about one's belief set only being reinforced rather than questioned by the media they, they're consuming. Nietzsche has this idea that thoughts are the shadows of our feelings. And for me, that observation of my feelings is so powerful. And I don't know what the herd is rushing towards at the moment, but it seems like the herd is digitally obsessed. The herd is hyper-connected. When I step out of that, when I step back into nature, be that on the bike, walks in the right. park, on the beach, it's difficult to explain it, but it, there's a feeling that this is the right path, that the Garmin is back on the green route, that I'm authentic to myself and who I should be. And it's time in nature is one of those really important things for recharging me. I think you're dead bang correct about that. And I think that an ability to... I, I feel like there's not been sufficient discussion of the extent to which sort of being digitally connected is really a, a huge danger, not in terms of just the information we consume and how we think about it, but this sort of alienation from ourselves. And I know I keep sort of harping on that, but I think that that is one of the most dangerous aspects of it because you're sort of plugged into something that to me, the sort of psychological phenomenon of it feels very sort of dreamlike and detached. And, and I think that people always poo-poo academic philosophy somewhat correctly for being very cerebral and very abstract. But where I think that academic philosophy really is a useful way of examining our current cultural moment is there's a huge drive from Plato onward in terms of valuing ideas and abstract concepts more than tangible things or skills or particular people. So I think that really looking at how Plato, Christianity, a whole lot of things are embedded in how we scientifically approach the world have led us to our current technological, psychological moment, examining where those things came from. And they actually came from the discipline, quote unquote, philosophy to a much larger extent, I think, than people understand. And embedded in philosophy in certain figures that, that I have a great deal of sympathy for are ways to extract yourself from this abstract thinking that privileges code and ideas and abstract things over being on the beach, 
nature being in the forest to a great extent. Yeah, we've definitely had a shift to the tangible, like a move to, you know, materialism, a move to information and a move away from the non-tangible, like thoughts, feelings, emotions. Well, we sort of have, but I think that, I think if you, you, just to sort of, to really illustrate this, go back and, and let's think about the sort of, right, it famously, everyone, it was famously said that everything in philosophy is footnotes to Plato. So when you think about, you think about Plato, right? You think about Plato, he says, well, you, you walk into a philosophy 101 class, the instructor is bound to say, well, knock on it right here. Here's a table. And this table is bad example of the idea of table. It's going to rot. It's made of wood. This leg's a little crooked. This table here is kind of shit. But, says Plato, the idea of table is everlasting, immutable, perfect. We will forever have it. It's not going to decay. So it's, it's superior and thus more real than this crappy instantiation of a table in front of us. And I think that that move and the emotional desire for permanence that compels it is hugely, hugely important and still very, very salient to how science and technology approach the world at present. So I think that that getting back to saying, you know, you know what? The actual table matters. That's what I'm touching. I'm a craftsperson. That's what I made. And I'm okay with dealing with the the impermanence of this particular table, because in a lot of ways, that is truly all I've got. So I think that when we think about computers, we think about code, we think about who gets rewarded with what, it tends to be not, I drove this cab, but I came up with the code sitting in a cloud that no one can see or ever touch. This code that will allow uh, a user <laughs> to gin up a cab at their doorstep to deliver them anywhere in the world, right? So I think that you can sort of apply this sort of platonic dualism to that and see that still, 2,500 years later, what gets rewarded is this abstract concept rather than, than the tangible thing. To go full circle with the conversation and tie it back into cycling i can remember my first pro race and i looked like an amateur i looked like an outsider and i right. came down uh, i made the front split maybe 20 riders over a category one climb it was an especially okay. wet rainy horrible slippy day we were coming down this perilous descent and as we were about to take the first corner won the season pros put his hand on my shoulder and he said to me look where you want to go not where you don't want to go. Yep. And that small piece of advice, it guided me down the descent that day, but it's also been, it's been a guiding light for me off the bike for a long time, looking yep. where I want to go and not where I don't want to go. Is there any enduring lessons you learned from cycling that you've taken into either the philosophical world or your personal life? Yeah, I think very much, there's a brilliant Churchill quote who suffered, Winston Churchill, who also suffered greatly from depression. When you're going through hell, keep going. And I think that the biggest lesson on the bike is an ability to know that you can suffer and that that pain and suffering will pass and that it's something that you can get through. And you have a, a low moment 
as we all do in any hell, even a 200 meter time trial. You can feel the legs load up for uh, an 11 second effort and say, I don't know how I'm going to do this, much less in a five or six hour race. So I think the ability to endure psychological and physical pain and know that there will be something else on the other side of it is the most valuable lesson that, that I got from the sport of cycling and continue to apply. James, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to link up your book and any other resources I find from yourself in today's show notes. Thanks for chatting with me on the Roadman Podcast. Brilliant. I really enjoyed it, Anthony. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.